0: So, this morning we're arriving at chapter nine. And if you're following along, you know that in chapter nine, Jesus sends the disciples out to preach and feeds a crowd of 5,000 hungry people. And he meets Moses and Elijah in the Transfiguration. And at the end of the chapter, Jesus has a series of very short, even abrupt encounters with three unnamed men called the would-be disciples. So listen for God's word to you as I read Luke chapter 9 verses 51 through 62. But as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But The people there, they did not welcome Jesus because he was heading to Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along a road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of God to us.
1: The would-be disciples. Because Luke doesn't actually provide names for any of these three characters, that is the term you most often hear to describe them. Three characters who appear and disappear so quickly in Luke's narrative that they're actually in kind of a three-way tie for the briefest appearance of all of his characters in his entire gospel. Just two sentences each. In rapid succession, in just six verses at the end of Luke's ninth chapter, these three would-be disciples appear and then just about as quickly disappear. But what might be even more surprising than the speed in which they appear and disappear is the unexpectedly prickly response that they get from Jesus. I mean, think about it. Each of these three people was at that vulnerable and tender moment of considering whether they want to commit their entire life to following Jesus. And Jesus, instead of affirming that they were making that decision in the first place, instead, in a series of rapid one-liners, he pretty much puts each one in their place. He cuts them down to size, essentially saying, Well, as far as I'm concerned, in this following thing, you're just not 100% in. And I'll be honest, this is not one of my favorite passages in the book of Luke. And in fact, in a funny way, that's why we're talking about it this morning. Three, four months ago, I was thinking through this whole series. I was looking at each chapter and deciding which passage each week that we would zero in on. Because each chapter, you know, has four or five really good episodes, good passages. Which one would we look in on? And I found my way to chapter 9. And there were two really great, familiar favorites. There was the feeding of the 5,000. And there was the amazing thing that happened on the mountain in the transfiguration. And I was trying to decide between which one of those when out of the corner of my eye, I saw these six verses. And as I glanced at them, I actually found myself daring myself. I said, David, why are you avoiding Those six verses. Are you scared of them? (laughs) Yeah, sure, they're a little bit harsh. They're a little bit jarring. But maybe for that very reason, these are words that you need to hear, David. And if you need to hear them, it could be that that congregation that's going to be listening to you that Sunday is going to need to hear them as well. And so I did something that can be really dangerous. I took my own dare. And on that worship planning calendar I was doing, I I sketched in Luke 9, 57 through 62, the six verses at the very end of the passage. And then I went on to chapter 10 to figure out what we'll do next week. So now fast forward to maybe two weeks ago, I pulled out that worship planning schedule to begin preparing for this particular message. And do you know what went through my mind? What was I thinking? Really? These verses, David? What were you thinking? I mean, if you're like me, you're already feeling rather insecure about your ability to follow Jesus faithfully. Do you really need to hear Jesus piling on these? Three well-intentioned people who want to follow Jesus. What could I possibly say to make these three encounters make sense? And that's when I saw it. I saw the paragraph that immediately precedes these six verses in Luke's gospel. And if you want to pull out a Bible, you might want to look at this and see what I'm talking about. What I realized is Luke does not intend for us to read these six verses at the end of Luke's gospel in isolation. He intends for us to read them immediately following what happens in the six previous verses. To put this another way, the only way that we can make sense of the strange things that Jesus says to these three would-be disciples is by Hearing it in light of what Jesus does six verses earlier. Talking about the first verse that Debbie read just a moment ago. And it actually, I'm glad that I decided to include it because it turns out to be one of the more important verses in Luke's entire gospel. Here's how it reads. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And in the whole 24 chapter long story of Jesus' life that Luke is telling in his gospel, this verse is like the hinge. It is the inflection point. Right here, everything changes. You know this if you have been following along so far through the book of Luke. You know that up to this point, Jesus and the disciples have been up in the north, what's called Galilee, but they've basically been rambling around without any real intentional direction they've gone here they've gone there and they've just kind of moved around all that changes right here it's like jesus suddenly hears something summoning him to set out on a long and fateful journey in a single direction on an unstoppable journey southward toward his fateful destiny there in jerusalem In Greek, the the literal language here is that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And for the next 10 chapters, until that moment when Jesus arrives on Palm Sunday in the capital city, Luke's narrative is going to embody this relentless, irreversible movement. Luke is going to remind us constantly that Jesus is on a journey. Jesus is on an epic, tragic journey journey a journey that he did not ask to take but that he knows that he has to complete a journey into the very heart of darkness into pain and into suffering but a journey that Jesus knows is central to his identity as god's son and god's promised messiah by writing Into his narrative arc, this relentless motion toward Jerusalem, Luke is saying something really important about who Jesus is and what it means for us to love him. It's something that photographer Michael Belk captures beautifully in this photo. It's from a book that I have of similar shots. Belk is a modern photographer, and he sets up these scenes in which he provocatively inserts Jesus into contemporary context. And I, I love this picture and what it says. What Luke is telling us is that if you really want to abide in Jesus, and remember, that is what we've been talking about for months. If you want to abide in Jesus, don't make the mistake that thinking abide as something stationary, that it's something inert. Because Jesus is not stationary or inert. As he tells one of these three would-be disciples, his kind of abiding isn't in an abode. Because he doesn't have one. Foxes do, birds do, but not him. No, Jesus is on the move. That's who he is. In his commentary on Luke, New Testament scholar from Fuller Seminary, Joel Green, notes that in the Greek, the verb go occurs nine times in these 12 verses. You can't exactly see that in English, because to make it readable, they have to translate it a little bit differently. But Luke's point is that if you're going to be following this Jesus, you will not be standing still. In fact, to be Jesus' disciple... Means to be on a journey. Well, what's that really mean? Well, bound up in the very definition of journey is the idea of opportunity cost. There's always something bittersweet about a journey because it means to leave somewhere and something behind. Because you are on a journey, there will be experiences that you won't have that you might have had otherwise had you chosen to remain at home. And the thing about those things that you give up on a journey is that often those things are really good things. They are beautiful things. They're even honorable things in themselves. So I want to be clear that in this passage, Jesus is not saying that attending to the death of a parent or attending to the love of a family are bad things. No, just the opposite. And that's the point. And it's even more so in that culture, in the first century in Palestine, than in ours. These are examples of decency and responsibility. These are obligations that anyone would recognize. But Jesus is saying... If you're going to follow me, there is a journey involved. And when you journey, you leave some good things behind. It is kind of bittersweet. The hobbit Samwise Gamgee knew this. In the second book of Tolkien's trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo Baggins are exhausted, they are disheartened, they are alone in their long journey to destroy that ring and its evil in the fires of Mount Doom. And as they catch their breath before the final climb over the mountain pass into Mordor, Sam reflects on the cost of their shared journey. Here's what he says. And we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose that's often the way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo, adventures, as I used to call them, I used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them, because they were exciting and their life was a bit dull. It was a kind of sport, as you might say. But that's not the way of it in the tales that really mattered, or the ones that stay in the mind. Folk seem to have been just landed in them, usually. Their paths were laid that way, as you put it. But I expect they had lots of chances, like us, of turning back. Only they didn't. And if they had, we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on. And not all to a good end, mind you, at least not to what folk inside the story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder, Mr. Frodo, what sort of tale we've landed into. That's the question That Luke wants us readers of his gospel to ask. If we're gonna follow this Jesus, what sort of tale have we landed into? And what Luke tells us in verse 51 is that this is a tale not just about a journey, but about a journey with Jesus to Jerusalem. And the more you sit and ponder that phrase and its implications, the more agonizing and full of sadness you realize it is. Every journey might have an opportunity cost, but the cost of this particular journey that Jesus begins in verse 51, this journey to the cross, is beyond our ability to comprehend. What Jesus gave up that day, I can't begin to measure. Into what depths of suffering he set his face that day, I am unable to begin to grasp. As were, apparently, these three would-be disciples. Like us, they have figured out how appealing and winsome this Jesus seems to be. Like us, they have this gut impulse to follow, to be with him, to be near him. And like us, they have no clue what that journey really means. How could they? But because it is a journey with Jesus, on Jesus' path, where Jesus is going, Jesus needed each one of them to know that it was a journey along the way of the cross. His cross. A journey of discovering, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it in that first sentence of his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that when Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. And so, if these things that Jesus says to these three would-be disciples seem a bit unsettling, it's because they are. Jesus who himself has no place to settle but journeys to the cross, is too kind to leave any misunderstanding in the minds of these three disciples about what it means to follow him. It is a commitment to an unsettled life, to a life of surrendering the self, of learning his way of suffering love, of participating in his very death. It is a journey he wants these three would-be disciples to know that will require them to surrender the right that they feel to some undeniably good things. A life in which they put their hand to the plow and don't look back at what they've given up. And if some unsettling words, even some jarring hyperbole, helps them to understand that, Jesus is willing to say it. Much more willing than most of us are, most of the time, including us pastors, which I think is why, to nearly every one of us in this room right now, this talk of the cost of discipleship, this talk of what Jesus might ask us to surrender when we offer to join him on his journey to Jerusalem, is so foreign to us. It is so disquieting, it's so unwelcome. But if Jesus, by his sharp words, jars these three would-be disciples into active thinking about it, he probably wants to do the same with us, inviting us to at least consider what it might mean to us would-be disciples to follow. Just like Jesus did with these three would-be disciples, I want to make this just a bit more personal. Imagine yourself, would-be disciple number four, and you're talking to Jesus. What would you be likely to say? How would you finish this sentence? Jesus, I will follow, but first let me... Now... The reason that a farmer should not look back while he's plowing is that he's likely to veer off course and end up with crooked furrows. But I'm convinced, in spite of Jesus' jarring words here, that the reason a disciple of Jesus wouldn't want to look back is actually more positive. It's because the destination ahead is simply so awesome. Yes, all this talk of sacrifice, of giving things up is difficult, But, and I think it's difficult because the way of the cross is difficult, and it is serious, and it is heavy, But even in this passage that I think is more bleak than many of Luke's passages, Luke gives us a few clues that the journey isn't just difficult for its own sake, it's difficult because something so much bigger and so much more beautiful is being born in our midst. And he says it twice, twice in this passage, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God. And there is so much in those three words. This is Jesus' shorthand for the mind-boggling truth that because of Jesus' suffering love, because we have a God like this, the world itself is being healed and restored and set right. Sort of like it was for Frodo and Sam, but so, so much more. And that is where Jesus' urgency with these would-be disciples comes from. If the kingdom of God, if the ultimate good for all creation is at hand, then everything short of that kingdom reality, even all of those good things in life, pale in comparison. So what's really happening here is Jesus, the releaser of captives, wants to release these three from captivity to anything less than that kingdom. Does it work? In the story, do these three would-be disciples decide to follow him after all? Do they take that risk or do they wander off discouraged? We don't know, do we? Isn't it interesting that Luke, the master storyteller, leaves us hanging? Could it be that Luke looks to us, his readers, to finish this story in our own lives, to find the courage to hold loosely all that is merely good so that we won't miss the truly great and epic journey with Jesus that we were created to embark upon? I want to end by telling you about someone, someone many of you know, someone who often sits right down here, who, as I speak this morning, is on such an epic adventure of serving in Jesus' name, precisely because he chose to hold loosely the good comforts of his life. Just as Hurricane Michael was hitting the Florida coast on October 10th, our own Will McMahon got a phone call from the Red Cross. Many of you know that he is an on-call Red Cross volunteer. He does a lot with Red Cross. But in this case, they told him to mobilize. 36 hours later, he was on a plane to Tallahassee to help organize shelters for the thousands who suddenly found themselves, like Jesus in our passage, with nowhere to lay their heads. Now... A few days ago, Will actually shot a video that we were going to use in worship this morning. Um, But this is is a classic case of what, what it is like to be on a journey. When he got ready to send it, they discovered that the Wi-Fi in the Red Cross shelter they were staying in wasn't working. So instead, I'm going to tell you about how Will approaches his Red Cross work. And if you know Will, this is not going to be a surprise. Now obviously, there is great good in helping people who are facing such a disaster. And that is important, and it's important to Will. But for Will, there is a further element of why he does that. Every time he mobilizes, he has this wonderful curiosity to discover That one particular person, that relationship, that conversation that Jesus is sending him there to find and discover, wherever the Red Cross sends him. Well, this time, he has been assigned to drive a truck, and he is driving it all day, every day, supplying food and supplies to three shelters and two kitchens that are in his district there in Panama City, the destruction of which he told me is a picture of Panama City on the screen. Um, He told me yesterday, it's just impossible to imagine, impossible to fathom. By the way, each of these shelters houses 800 people, and each of the kitchens feed 1,500 people a day. So that's a lot of supplies that you need to go find in a basically, you know, failed economy right there in the Florida panhandle. And while he's had some really good conversations with people about his own faith, as of yesterday, he was pretty sure he hasn't yet had that one encounter that Jesus has sent him there to have. But in the meantime, he gets to spend all these hours alone, driving a truck with a broken radio, through streets with no traffic lights. He says it takes forever to get anywhere. But he says it has given him long, undistracted hours to just spend time with God. Or I would add, with his hand on the steering wheel, not looking back.